0: Genesis chapter 45, I warned you last week that nobody was going to have more fun for this Christmas season than I was. Um, Yes, it's odd passages for Christmas, but trying to look at the pictures in the Old Testament, trying to show you some of the second layer stuff. So there's a a lesson they try to teach us in seminary, and eh, some of us try to learn it, some of us like me try to forget it. But there's a description that they have of the Bible, or at least they try to give us, that the um you have to think of scripture like a pool connected to the ocean. It is shallow enough that the kids can play around and be safe, but it is deep enough that the theologian can go get lost forever and ever and ever, meaning as you're studying the passage, there are the obvious points that you can get at the surface level, you know, that scripture is simple and basic and understandable to get the message, and that is absolutely true. But there is also an undercurrent of things that are going on at the second, third, fourth, fifth, 974th level and what I want to try to do this Christmas is have a little bit of fun just digging into those underlying things to kind of show a lot of the stuff. We cover a lot of second and third and fourth level things, but even I don't try to get us down to the base level of every possible avenue that could be explored in a passage, because let's be honest, if we did that for every passage, um, pack a lunch. So, and I don't want to do that to you, and you don't want me to do that to you, so for this Christmas, we're going to try to have some fun with it and do some of those pictures and show the surface level, yes, but also where these pictures line up and why they're so very important as what's going on on that second level for your Bible. So with that, last week we were in Genesis 2, so I'm going to help you out with context because I still make sure that the rules apply. You don't just, you know, fall out of the balloon into whatever passage that you are in. So from chapter 2 to chapter 45, as you would imagine, a lot can happen. And in the book of Genesis, a lot does happen. So from chapter 2 to here, what's happened? Adam and Eve sin, they're cast out of the garden. Sin abounds, leading to God judging sin in the flood. Sin still abounds, and God disperses humanity everywhere. He calls Abram and makes promises to him, changes his name to Abraham, and then makes promises to his son Isaac, and then makes the same promises to his son Jacob. Then you begin to see the fulfillment of those promises as Jacob has a pile of children, by four women. So that's a whole lesson for another day that we should probably cover one of these times. But then God begins this fulfillment with Israel, and that's who Jacob used to be. (laughs) So Abram went to Abraham, and Jacob goes to Israel. And in the midst of all of that, sin abounds. And that's what leads us to the lead into this. So one of israel's children by the name of joseph is is a bit annoying to his other brothers so they plan to kill him after throwing him into a ditch and then decide you know that's probably a bad plan probably frowned upon by God and our family to kill our brother. So we'll just sell him to the slavers. That's a good plan, right? Sell him off into slavery. Who knows what will happen to him? Have fun storming the castle. Everything will be great. And in the midst of that, we have Joseph actually thriving in Egypt where he lands and getting a pretty sweet, cushy gig as second in command of the most powerful nation in all the earth. It just so happens then that his brothers show up in need of food and provision because they're starving to death. That's never a good plan. And as far as the general context here, because it's been so long, they don't recognize Joseph as their brother, and Joseph is playing games with them and hiding valuable things in their, in their food bags and giving them extra food to making them think that they're thieves, and he's now also got their little brother hostage, which, by the way, Quick aside that we don't have time to get into this morning. If you want a great picture of the work of Christ, go read the speech of Judah in chapter 44, wherein Judah, who is the one who the promised king will come from, you don't know that now, but you find that out in chapter 49, makes this deal, well, it doesn't make a deal, but offers himself in place of his youngest brother, even though Judah has done nothing wrong, and even though he thinks his youngest brother has done everything wrong. Wonderful speech, wonderful picture of Christ, even though Judah has been allowed earlier. He gets a bit of a, a little bit of redemption in chapter 44. Now, in this chapter, Joseph reacts to this speech and starts looking like the pictures that God has promised throughout this book. And with that, there's a lot of pictures. Hopefully, we will get to dive into many of them and make sense of them. And that catches you up to chapter 45. Sound good? Okay, first one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him and he cried. That's a good way to start off a Bible passage today, didn't it? Instead of and he died, we have and he cried. So that's good news. Now, again, this has been building with what was going on in the previous chapters, so we'll cover some of this. So Genesis 42, Reuben answered them saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. And he Joseph turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them and spoke to them, he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, this is one of those fun little things. Joseph is second in command of Egypt is still operating like he is not their brother. He has not revealed this to them. He's still talking to them through an Egyptian inter- uh, interpreter, even though he understands them perfectly well, giving all the illusions. Again, having some good fun with his brothers, although they don't think it's fun, and Joseph doesn't necessarily think it's fun, but he's still putting them to the test to see if they're the same brothers that threw him in a pit, bloodied, and then, you know, decided on, we're debating on whether or not to sell him or kill him before you feed those guys might want to decide if they're actually worth saving this time around, which for those of you that are younger siblings or even older siblings, you can probably understand, you know, debating on whether or not your siblings are worth saving. So (laughs) again, I have this in my house every once in a while. My children are annoying each other. And I look at my wife. Does this make sense to you? Yes, they're being siblings. Okay, thank you. Because only child, I don't get it. I see them bothering each other. And it's like, why are you doing that? I don't know. You could stop it. No, I can't. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like they seem to enjoy annoying each other. And they enjoy being annoyed by each other. I, I don't understand it. I'm never going to understand it. I'm going to just... Sorry, this is just one of those things that's going to bug me till the end because I don't get it. So Genesis 43... As he, lifted up, as he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, uh, this is Joseph, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. So Joseph has been a bit of an emotional train wreck for about four chapters now, and Judah's great speech of sacrifice has kind of broken him down completely and we're not hiding it any longer so joseph commands to have everyone go out from me so there was no man with him when joseph made himself known to his brothers he wept so loudly that the egyptians heard it and the household of pharaoh heard of it okay so we're not talking like a little misty at the end of a hallmark movie we're talking like ugly crying you're like sobbing and the snot and the whole nine yards you get the idea Now, why does Joseph send everybody out? Why does he want this to be a private affair? This is where you have to have a little bit of a timeout and make sure we understand exactly who Joseph is. Now, I told you earlier, but we can read it too. Genesis 41. Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this, talking about Joseph, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. So Pharaoh sits on the throne, but who's wielding all the power in Egypt? Well, God is, but humanly speaking, Joseph is. Pharaoh may still sit on the throne, but when Joseph says jump, what does everybody do? They start jumping and then they ask, well, is this high enough to higher, lower? Okay, this is good. I mean, we've got preparations to make. This is Joseph's job. He's kind of running a country. What do you call a dude who kind of runs the country and everybody has to do what they say? He's a king. Joseph is very, very intentionally being presented as a king in Egypt. That's very, very important. Verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. (laughs) Which dismayed at his presence is your Bible's very polite way of like standing there mouth agape. Now, because I have an imagination for these sorts of things, I always imagine them all just lined up and then like one of them just like passing out. Just one of them. And, and I have thought about this. It was Naftali, And the reason it was Naftali is because his name means my struggle. So if anybody was going to have a hard time with everything, it was going to be Naftali. So in my imagination, they're all lined up in Naftali just like, bam, <laughs> what happened is everything okay now why are they a little dismayed at his presence because the last time they saw him they had thrown him in a pit and only drug him out to sell to slave traders and you know when you when you sell your brother to a group of random nomads in the desert do you do you plan on seeing him again Not even as a king. But do you even plan on seeing him again? Probably not. Especially when you really consider that he's, in their mind, he's kind of a brat and a bit of a nuisance. So if anybody's not going to do well in slavery, it's going to be which brother? Yeah, the young, weak, bratty one who we just beat up and threw in a pit. So he's, well, we didn't kill him. We fully anticipate what? That he died. And he died. And so this is where... This, this is where our pictures become so very important. This is where lining this stuff up matters. Joseph is basically king in Egypt, but as far as his brothers are concerned, he was dead and now he is alive. You are being presented with a what? A resurrected king. This matters for some of the pictures that are going on at your second level. This is not just the preservation of Israel and the provision for this family. This is part of the underlying pictures that are going on throughout your Bible and throughout everything. Now, why is Joseph being presented like that? you got to wait just a minute, okay? Verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer because again, as far as they're concerned, this is a ghost, you know, Naphtali's still over there passed out. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. I like how we have to repeat that because we're freaked out that you just said you're Joseph. So it didn't actually register that you're Joseph. So we've got to tell you a second time. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. (laughs) Um, Joseph, I I love you, but um, maybe they should be a little grieved and probably should be a little angry with themselves because let's be honest, did they have nice intentions for their brother? No, rewind to chapter 37. When they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then come, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. And we'll say a wild beast has devoured him. Then we will see what become of his dreams. I mean, imagine the hatred you have for your younger sibling. We're like, we'll, we'll, we'll kill him, we'll throw him in a pit, and we'll bring some garments back to dad and say a lion ate him. <laughs> 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 Which, gotta wonder, like, if that's the best lie you could come up with. Well, you know, we were all standing there, and this lion just reached in, grabbed him, ate him, swallowed him whole, and now he's gone. So... Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, did he grab the flocks? No, no, didn't grab any of the sheep? Nope, didn't get the camels? Nope, didn't go after any of the other brothers? No, it's amazing. Any of you try to beat the lion off with a stick or something? No, we, you know, we tried that. Any of you get scratched in the process? You know, it's amazing. You know, we were smacking him with a stick and he just didn't claw. or, I mean, this is a dumb plan. This, this is a terrible lie, this is a terrible plan. <laughs> and yet, this is, what, this is what we're gonna go with. So one, they're bad. Two, they're bad liars. (laughs) So maybe they should be a little grieved and angry, but why not? Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Now, this is where your picture of what's going on begins to take off, and you have tentacles in your Bible reaching in multiple directions. So this king who is dead and is alive now is alive for what reason? To deliver his people. So fast forward to something like, oh, I don't know, Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Now, you may be sitting there going, but, th- but that's, a, that's a lie. You want me to remember all the way from Genesis 45, all the way to something like Acts 2 with Jesus? Yes, yes, I do. Because it's not a new picture in the book of Genesis. So, let's play a game. You ready? This is a fun game. Well, not really, but it'll, it, it'll be fun for me. So if nobody else has any fun, that's all that matters, remember? Remember? Should this person be alive? No, 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 no. That, the game hasn't started yet. That's the game. Should this person be alive? Why or why not? All right. So Adam, should Adam have been dead in Genesis chapter three? Yes, he should have. Why? Because he ate of the fruit of the tree. He wasn't supposed to be. Was Adam dead by the end of chapter three? Hmm. Okay. Noah, say Genesis eight. Should Noah have been dead in Genesis eight when the when the when the ark landed in the mountains of Ararat? Should Noah have survived the flood? Be honest. Do you want to make a wooden boat with your own bare hands and survive a global catastrophe? Like, do you think this is a good plan? Or would you be like, um, could we wait a few millennia so that we can invent steel and (laughs) you know rivets and satellite navigation? Like. Yeah, you know, with the cell phones? No, okay, we're going to do this now. CB radios from like 1972. No, we can't do that either. No, Noah should have been dead, and yet he was alive. Um, Abram slash Abraham. Should Abraham have been alive, say, by Genesis 14? Why not? Remember, there was this lovely battle between the four kings versus the five kings, and the five kings were defeated by the four kings, and they took Lot hostage. And so Abraham rounds up 300 people to go start a war with an army led by four different kings. Is this a good plan? Like what is suddenly, this is like a bad movie, isn't it? Like we're sending SEAL Team Six in and they're gonna take on the entire Iranian army. This is gonna be a great movie plot. This is Rambo. Like this is what Abraham is doing. It's basically the plot of Rambo. It's one dude with a bow and arrow going after, you know, hundreds of people and we're all gonna be fine. Which one was that? Was that three? Was three the one with the exploding bow and arrow? Some of you are like, I'm trying to remember bad eighties action movies. (laughs) I mean, that's the plan, and yet Abraham does what? Conquers the four kings, returns with Lot, returns everybody's stuff, and everybody is happy. No, he should not have been alive. He should not have survived this process, and yet he does. Um, Isaac. Say Genesis 21, 22-ish. Should Isaac have been alive at the end of that little section? Why not? We're marching him up the mountain to do what with him? Offer a sacrifice to God. He goes up the mountain to sacrifice. He comes down the mountain alive. Go team. (laughs) This is part of your recurring pictures. Jacob. Jacob. Should Jacob have survived long enough to even have kids? Be honest. Look at the life of Jacob. Um, Lying about being Esau. um, Trying to cheat your uncle Laban. Your sons start a war with with the Shechemites. I mean, Jacob could have been dead like a dozen times. And yet Jacob is there and he's prospering. And everything seems to be working out just fine. And then Joseph. Should Joseph be alive? I mean, do you want to run this plan? We're going to beat you up, throw you in a pit, sell you to slavers. We're going to sell you in Egypt. Oh, by the way, when you get to Egypt, you're going to get falsely accused of sexual assault. You're going to get thrown into jail. We're going to leave you there. We're going to leave you in ancient Egyptian prison for a couple of years. Sound like fun? Like, do you want to sign up for Egyptian prison in the 18th century BC? Because. Because this, I don't want to sign up for Egyptian prison now. That just sounds like a bad idea. This, again, sounds like a bad plot of an 80s action movie. So Joseph is alive. Now, what's the picture here? Jesus, who was dead, is alive forevermore. Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside. Oh, I love Peter. Peter's over there be like, you know what? We need to have a meeting with the son of God over here. Come, 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 come. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord. (laughs) Just that sentence out loud should have told Peter this was a bad idea. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block for me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Why? It's the fulfillment of the pictures, fulfillment of the actual plan of God, the actual accomplishment of Jesus, which has been hinted at in your Bible for a while. Conquering king, dead and alive. Verse six, why is Joseph preserving life? For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Okay, how many of you have ever had a garden? I want you to imagine that Walmart has gone out of business. Groceries are too expensive to buy. I know this is a stretch, isn't it? <laughs> imagine prices just out of control and you can't afford basic necessities. You're like, stop it. Don't talk to me about next summer. <laughs> the rate we're going. And if you want to have food, you have to grow it. But your garden didn't produce anything last year. And it didn't produce anything... This year, apparently you're my mother-in-law trying to grow things. And it's not going to produce anything next year or the year after that. My wife is laughing because I'm serious about that. My mother-in-law, if it is possible to kill a plant, I think my mother-in-law could kill a plastic plant. I am convinced of it. If it can be done, she can do it. She has stopped on plants just for that very reason because she would bring home these things on like Friday. Isn't this beautiful? And by Tuesday, it's like, wasn't that green? (laughs) I don't know what it is. She waters them. She puts the feet. She can do everything that everybody else does, my mother-in-law's plant will die. It's just something about it. I don't know what it is. Anyway. So your garden didn't produce last year, this year. It's not going to produce next year, or the year after that, or the year after that, or the year after that, or the year after that. How are you feeling about that food situation? By the way, food prices are not coming down because nobody else's garden is producing anything either. If it's not in storage now, you don't have it, you're not going to eat it. What's going to happen to you about year two and a half? Yeah, you're going to starve to death unless you can find someone who has piles of stockpiled food ready to go and is willing to give it to you. The famine has been in the land these two years. There are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Now, what are the odds that you find this benevolent benefactor who will give you food for five years so that you and your family do not starve to death? You you feeling pretty good about this plan? This is not a good plan. This this seems like, you know, a lot of people are going to starve to death, including me and everybody we know and love and care about. And so this king who was dead and is alive is able to overcome what kind of obstacles, what kind of enemies? Yeah, pretty, pretty insurmountable ones. You know, like Abraham over the four kings, like God who will conquer Egypt, Like Israel conquering the Canaanites, even though they're vastly outnumbered and at the disadvantage. Like David defeating the Philistines that the Israelites have only been fighting against, oh, I don't know, going back for like 250 years. I mean, imagine a king arises in Israel and those guys who live on the coast who have been kicking our butts in battle for the last two and a half centuries, he just walks in and in like five years kills them all. And they're defeated. And we have peace in the land. Israel hadn't had peace in the land before David showed up ever. I mean, seriously ever. They went into the land in battle. Did they finish conquering the land properly? No. So from the time they went into the land with Joshua until the time of David, they were at war with someone almost constantly. And David brings peace. That's kind of a big deal. That's kind of an impossible situation that David David has accomplished. So like maybe Jesus conquering sin? Because let's be honest, who's the most undefeated enemy ever for humanity? Who hasn't sin corrupted? Who hasn't sin turned? This is part of the lesson of the garden. From the time sin enters into the planet, it corrupts Adam, it corrupts Eve, it corrupts everybody else. Where does sin lose a battle? I mean, it corrupts David, it corrupts Solomon, it corrupts Noah, it corrupts Abraham, it corrupts Jacob, it corrupts everybody. Jesus shows up, get behind me, Satan. Do not put the Lord your God to the test for it is written. I mean, this, this is the entire, Jesus is the guy. He's the one who comes in, defeats the enemy that nobody else can defeat, and actually conquers to bring about peace. Again, this is what Paul is trying to expand upon, things like Colossians 1 and Ephesians 2. He rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is part of the reason you have the picture that you have in Joseph. So... Joseph is a king who was dead and is now alive, able to provide for his people in the midst of what should be certain death and overcome an enemy that nobody else has any power to overcome. Is Joseph the guy though? No, because Joseph still has temptation. Joseph still has sin. Joseph is not the one to undo everything, but he's a picture of the one to undo everything. So as you're Israel, as you are you moving forward, when you look to the fulfillments of Christ and when you were Israel looking forward to the fulfillments of Christ, you should have been looking for what? a conquering king who overcomes the greatest of enemies, not lesser enemies, but the unconquerable ones, the ones that plague humanity from the beginning and will result in certain death. I mean, let's be honest, no food for seven years. How you feeling about, How you feeling about surviving? No, seven-year famine is certain death, unless Joseph has provision, unless God provides for his people through their king. That's what's going on here. Uh, verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Um, this is the other part of this. What's their hope if they got? Like, is, are we negotiating this here? I mean, if you're the brothers, are you like, you know, This is a decent deal, Joseph. I mean, you know, we appreciate you not being dead and all. And we appreciate you not killing us the second you saw us. That was very awesome of you. Greatly appreciate that. Um, Is there some wiggle room here? Like, you're going to provide us food. We're not going to starve to death. Our families are in. But got anything else? Is there something behind door number two? Like, is that how this goes down? Why not? Is there a better offer? Is there another hope? Is there another deliverance? No. Acts 17, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. That was Paul being fancy with what Jesus says very plainly in John 14. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So what Peter told the, uh, the Peter told the council in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. Christ is the only deal. There's not another one. You don't negotiate. You don't try to come up with a better plan. You simply agree. I haven't asked you this in a while, but always remember, what are God's terms again? Surrender, yeah. You, you don't negotiate, you don't line up, there's no, you don't go out with a white flag and hope to negotiate, you go out with a white flag and surrender and take what you get, which luckily for us in Christ is everything. Salvation, peace with God, a place in the kingdom, a hope for the future. That's what they're being offered by Joseph. You don't negotiate a really, really good deal, you say what? Thank you. <laughs> and that's what's pictured here, verse 8. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God why? Because Joseph is a type of him who is to come. What is Jesus forever telling the people? John 5, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not speak my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, John 17, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Why? What's the point for this resurrected king? What kind of authority does Joseph have? A lot, Not just a lot, I mean... Joseph is the wisest person in Pharaoh's eyes. Remember, Pharaoh was confronted with a seven-year famine that was going to be the end of his entire country and the end of everything that he knows. And here is this man sent from God who will come up with an idea that will keep us alive and keep our nation functioning. Sweet. I give you all authority to keep us alive. So when dude comes to you and says, this is what we must do so you don't die, what do you do? You do that thing. When he says, you know, when he says, here's step one, you do step one. When he says step two, you do step two. When we're at step 947, what are you doing? Step 947, because this is how we live. Joseph doesn't have a little bit of authority. Joseph has a ton of authority. And who's stronger than Egypt in this world? No one. I mean, in the the world. What other nations lining up against Egypt at this time be like, you know what we're going to do? We're taking those guys down. Yeah, that's, that's not happening. Joseph is the most powerful man in the world right now. <sighs> if I rewound you to chapter 37, or is it 38? Anyway, go, re- go back and read your Genesis. It'll do you good. Um, and you had Joseph crying up from this pit, begging for them not to kill him. Would you be like, you know, right there in that hole in the ground, that guy will be the most powerful human being on the planet. Just give him a couple of years. He's got to work some stuff out. Is, is that your bet? Would you, would you take that odds? Would you go lay that line down at Vegas? Would you be like, I got 20 bucks on that guy. The, the crying, bleeding one in the pit. That's the guy. That's, that's the one. Is, is that where you put your money? No. Why? Because it would be silly. So why is this picture being utilized? Again, fast forward to some of the pictures that are being drawn for you. Things like, oh, Philippians 2. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can even fast forward all the way to the end of the book, things like Revelation 5. I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, which by the way, just numerical Greek note for you, myriads and myriads, because of the way numbers are done in ancient languages, big numbers are really impossible. That's like when you were a kid and somebody started arguing with people about how big something was and you started making up numbers. Oh oh yeah. Well, it's like a billion. They're like, well, how many is that? A lot. Whenever you see myriads in your New Testament, same thing. It's basically Greek's way of saying, we got tired of counting, it's more than you can count, so that's how big it is. Just... just that's not related necessarily to anything important, but just so you know if you're reading along. And what, is this, what are these myriads doing? Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne, to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the living creatures kept saying, amen and the elders fell down and worshiped the king who was rejected and who was dead and is alive to deliver his people and have ultimate power that's joseph but what's that a picture of because that's christ that's what your bible is drawing out for you that's what it's demonstrating now joseph has power in an earthly sense Christ has power in an eternal sense because one greater than Joseph is here. One who can rule and reign, not the nations on earth, but the nations for eternity, is who Christ is. One who can rescue his people, not from famine, but from their sin. Who can redeem them and bring them into a kingdom, not for some protection, but for eternal protection. Christ is the better fulfillment because he is the better king, because he is God in flesh. This is what Hark the Herald is singing about. This is the hope of the nations. This is the joy of Christmas. This is the love of God poured out, giving the better thing so that his people will be blessed, so that his kingdom will be populated, so that his glory may shine. And that's the next thing we're getting to. My picture, my pages got out of order. That was almost bad, almost flipped the wrong page. You would have missed a whole page of notes. That would have been terrible, wouldn't it? Some of you are like so close. So, verse 9: Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you for there are still five years of famine to come and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Now, which of God's people is this work for? All of them. You, brothers, wake up naftily. Go get dad and who else? Everybody. Go get the whole household and get where? Here. So that you may be where I am. Because I have gone to prepare a place for you. And where I am going, you now know the way. This is part of what's being drawn out. Your salvation will be here and that salvation will be for how many of God's people? 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. We've talked about this before. This is the messed up picture that Israel got wrong, is they saw themselves as the nation of God. We're it. Who should be excluded in their minds? Everybody else. We're the nation of God. You're not. We are. Ha, ha, he, he. Now, go back into your Old Testament, though. Things like Exodus with the mixed multitude going up out of Egypt. Um, Picture through the uh, family line of Jesus especially in the book of Genesis and in the historical books like we get into Joshua. Um, it's a whole lot of non-Israel in there, isn't it? I mean, Judah's the family is, is, the, is the son that we trace the line of the Messiah from, that lovely Israelite woman of his, right? Tamar, the sinful daughter-in-law of who Judah thinks is the righteous one in this story. Very messed up. Um, fast forward to the taking down of Jericho, where we rescue who? Rahab, the prostitute, that Israelite woman? No. The Jerichoite who's then put into the family line of the Messiah. And then you fast forward a little farther till you get to things like Ruth, the Moabite, who was put into the family line of the Messiah. It's almost like God is purposely taking people from outside of Israel and putting them into Israel to demonstrate something. I wonder what he could possibly be trying to communicate to us that he keeps taking these people that aren't a part of our nation and making them a part of our nation. If only there was some way we could understand this lesson. because they missed it. This is the point, is that salvation is for all of God's people, and all of God's people are supposed to come from where? Yeah, this is the picture that you get in things like Revelation 7, when you look and you see gathered around the throne of God, what kind of people? All kinds of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from everywhere. Now, the other good part of this, you want to talk about some of your minor symbols? can't Joseph just send some food? I mean, can't, can't we do that? Does Joseph have that kind of authority? Yeah, can't we just load up some trucks, take this back to dad, tell you what, I'll even go with you so that I can talk to dad, visit for a little while, and then, I mean, I gotta get back and do some work, but, you know, whenever you guys get low on food, what should you do? Pack back up, come down, see me, I'll load you back up, come visit, I'll see you at, you know, see you at Christmas, it'll be awesome, we'll have Thanksgiving, and we'll just provide for you. Why is the salvation here and not over there? Because the salvation is not in that specific land because that's where the salvation is going to be, outside the gates. Things like, oh, Hebrews 13. Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Jacob, your salvation isn't just in a land, it is in God. And sometimes that salvation is outside of that land, and God will tell you that, and what should you do? Listen. Do not cling to the promises of the earth. Do not cling to the things of this earth. Cling to the things that are eternal. If God wants to put your family back in that land, what can he do? He'll put you back in that land. If God needs to redeem you now outside of that land, what should you do? Get outside of that land. Christian, this is not your home. You're an alien in this place. You are strangers on the earth. You are longing for a new city, for a new creation that has been redeemed of God, where things are set right. Do not cling to the things that are here. Look for the things that are to come. This is part of the work and part of the picture that's being drawn. Verse 12. Behold. Ooh, ooh, you know the rules. See a behold. Pay attention. Your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see. I still love that in the midst of this, he's like, I trust that one the more, the most. (laughs) That it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. All right, I have questions. I have questions. If you're Jacob, sitting at home, waiting for these kids of yours to come back again. Because remember, you sent them down to go get food because you heard there was food down in Egypt. So you sent them down there. They got food. They came back. You didn't pay for the food, even though you told me you paid for the food, but your money is still here. So it kind of looks like you didn't pay for the food because remember, Joseph put the money back in the bags when they weren't looking. And so I sent you back with double the money so that you could pay for this round of food that we need and the last round of food that you nitwit stole. And then you try to come back and you miss, you're missing a brother because of some weird story that doesn't make any sense to me. And now you're going back again. Now, now you're going to come back and tell me that the kid that's been dead for 20 years is alive? Do you believe them if you're Jacob? Does this make any sense to you? Do, do you trust these people? Do you believe these people? Are you going anywhere with these people? <laughs> be like dad dad no we're serious this time we mean it joseph's alive and you just need to come with us to go see him i am not getting in the car with you this is how you trick me into going into a home i know it is <laughs> I, I, I just know it we're gonna drive down and you're gonna, then you're gonna start telling me oh it's wonderful they play bingo on tuesdays you're gonna love it here <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding so why well, the simple solution to be joseph go back They see you, you know, Jacob sees you, no problems, no confusion, no lying. Okay. To whom does the prophetic work belong? To whom does the evangelistic work belong? It belongs to the people of God who are being redeemed, who are being saved. That's the brothers here. It's not Joseph's job. It's their job. Christian, this is... A little bit of a picture of you. You get to go out into a world that doesn't believe anything, doesn't want to hear anything, doesn't even know they have a sin problem, and you get to tell them that the judgment of God abides on you. And even though you know it, you're denying it and lying about it yourself. But that's okay. The 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 judgment of God abides upon your sin, but there is a salvation in Christ. Forsake everything and follow Him. Do they believe you? Are they going to get in the car with you? See the problem? It's almost like the only way the brother that that Jacob will believe these sons of his is if who changes his heart? God. It's almost like when you go out and tell the world who Christ is and try to live according to him, you need who to work? God to work. You have a provision and you have a hope in God and in nothing else. Never forget that. Never undermine that. 1 John 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete." Ooh, I want joy, 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 down in my heart, right? Verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. Everybody's crying and crying on everybody else. This is what happens when you have these scenes before they've invented those little puffs tissues. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Okay, this one's easy. Who's not happy right now in this story? Everybody's happy. Joseph's happy because he gets to provide for his brothers. Benjamin's happy because he's got his brother that he thought has been dead for his whole life. Um, The brothers are happy because their brother who they thought they had killed is not killing them. That's a definite win. It's like always nice when the brother who could kill us is not killing us. Everybody's got joy. And not only that, we're not going to starve to death. We're not going to die. And everybody's going to survive. And it's awesome. Uh, Luke 15. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We have salvation from God, through his king, for his people. What isn't there to be happy about? Now, verse 16. When the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. I don't know why, but it did. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. (laughs) Easy there, computer. (laughs) You hit one button too many times. Like, I can see the clock, I am good. (laughs) Now, the, God, the joy of God extends where in this, in this nation? Everywhere. Even the people who aren't necessarily the people of God have joy. This is a little bit of a picture of what we talked about. Um, things like the rising tide raises how many of the boats? All of them. If you want to float your boat but there's other boats in the marina and you raise the water level Well, everybody else's boats go up too. You didn't just do, you no, know, I only want my boat to float out. The rest of you have to sink. That's not how this works. This is the joy of the work of God. This is the celebration in his kingdom of salvation. This is again, part of what it looks like with that joy extending. So I mentioned it earlier, Exodus 12, the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot aside from children. I always love how in the Bible, we don't count the children. They're like, yeah, they're in there somewhere. They're fine and then we wonder how Jesus got lost. (laughs) He's with the baggage. He's with his mother. It'll be fine. A mixed multitude also went up with them along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. That's the Egyptians, by the way, the Egyptians that followed after God, the Egyptians that put the blood in the doorpost, who brought their cattle inside when the hail was coming, because you've got the men traveling, you've got the children going along, and then you've got a mixed multitude. That's the other people who aren't Israel. Why? Because this is the fulfillment of God. So it's Christmas time. You have to do the Linus thing, right? Luke 2. In the same region, there were, pro- there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will, which will be for... All people, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's the hope. That's where the joy of God extends in his salvation. It's not just for that one group of people over there and nobody else gets to participate. It is a work that extends because it is the work that is done by the Spirit of God, accomplished by the King of God, who was born to save his people. Verse 19. Now, you are ordered. <laughs> we are given demands out. You ready? Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, and to, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. He likes his brother best. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. So they made how with ban- they got loaded up with stuff going into Egypt because they're going to get loaded up with stuff doing what? Going out of Egypt. It's almost like God's trying to make a point to people that salvation actually provides. That salvation isn't just a hope. And You know what? We got you this far, kid. You know what? From here on in, you're on your own. That's not how God operates. That's not what he accomplishes. Um, Luke 12 When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now, in in order for that to occur, where does the Holy Spirit have to be hanging out? With me. This is the provision of God. His Spirit in His people so that they are provided for. Sometimes it's wisdom. Sometimes it's a Bible verse. Sometimes it's making sure you don't starve to death, but it, always, it is always God preparing his people for his kingdom and providing for them that they may enter into it. Keep in mind, that's what this is for. This is so that as Joseph and the brothers are traveling back down to Egypt, you don't have to worry about stopping anywhere. You got what? You got everything. You head to the nation that God has provided so that you will be saved, so that you will be delivered. You have what you need for the journey. Christian, so do you. This is why I always give you back to the Pilgrim's Progress analogy. Because that's the story of Christian traveling to the Celestial City. Everything he needs is there. His problem comes when he does what? stops paying attention and gets off the highway and that's why i always love there's a second half of that book i've mentioned this before but it's always worth mentioning again the first half of the book is always christian traveling to the city and all of the pitfalls and all of the problems that he has and all the difficulties by which he enters into salvation including have to swim having to swim the river at the end and and basically drowning in the river to get across and then the second half of the book is like half as long because it's the story of his wife and children progressing but they have a guide and the tour guide is basically like, and here's where your husband, and he went off the road over there. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep going. And here's where he did this. And, and then, like, when they get to the river, there's a ferry, and they, get, they board the boat and go across. And they're just like, we're skipping to the kingdom, the kingdom, <laughs> because they've actually got someone explaining scripture to them, and they're not figuring it out themselves as they go. This is the provision of God. This is the work of Scripture. This is the accomplishment of the Holy Spirit for his people day in and day out. That's what's being pictured here. You're not going to starve to death on the trip. You're not going to get attacked by bandits. You're not going to have any problems. You're just going to be given everything that you need, and here you go. No problems. And you don't even have to walk. Get in the wagon. Get in the wagon and ride. We're not taking you to a home. We're taking you to a nice nation where everything will be wonderful. (laughs) Still sounds like one of those cartoons where they push the cat out the side because you don't want to have it in the garage anymore verse 24. So he sent his brothers away and they departed. He said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. (laughs) While you're leaving, stop it. (laughs) Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. They told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And what is not recorded is Jacob going, um, didn't you tell me he was eaten by a wild animal? How is he still alive? Did you not witness this devouring? You know that's in there, but it's not recorded here. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. All right. There was a subtle thing, and I didn't highlight it. Did anything odd about that little section jump out at you? I'm going to read it again and point it out to you, okay? So you don't have to change anything, Paul. He um, he sent his brothers away. They went to Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. They told him saying, Joseph is still alive. And indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned for he did not believe them. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob revived. Then Israel said, all right, pause for a second. Jacob and Israel are the same person, but Genesis does this. And this is one of those, all right, this is one of those, put this in your back pocket for whenever you're reading Genesis. The book likes to play with you when it comes to Jacob, because after he is named Israel, so like after Abram has his name changed to Abraham, do you know how many times the Bible refers to him as Abram again? Never, never. Abram and Sarai become Abraham and Sarah, and that is it. We're done here. End of discussion. Jacob, however, sometimes he's Jacob, sometimes he's Israel. Sometimes that's really, really important because there are times when he is still Jacob and then there are times when he is Israel. This is one of those times. Jacob doesn't believe. Jacob has doubts. I don't blame the man. Again, I recounted this earlier. You told me he was eaten by a wild animal. You brought me bloody clothing. What, did the, you're now trying to convince me the wild animal just kind of drug him off and didn't chew him up in the corner? I mean, meh. I have so many questions. But Israel has faith. Israel believes. The nation, the people of God have faith in God, that what he has promised and what he has declared will be accomplished. This is the work of God for the people of God. This is the important part, for the glory of God. This isn't about Jacob. This isn't about the brothers. This isn't even about Joseph. This is about Christ. This is about the salvation that God will bring, the hope that he will give to his people, and the provision that has been provided. So things like Philippians 3. Brethren, after Paul and for chapter two, Philippians 2 and 3, laying out salvation, talking about the work of Christ. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. See, this is where we live now in hope, the fulfillment of what was promised to Mary. So if you want, you want Christmas, here you go, Luke 1. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. See, this is where the fulfillments are pointing. Joseph's in charge, but there's going to arise one day in Egypt what? A pharaoh who knew not Joseph. David brought them peace, settled the borders. Solomon even maintained that peace for a little while, and then what happened? Some nitwit becomes king, can't do what's right, can't act with any wisdom, and the borders start to do what? Because we're no longer at peace. We no longer have security. We have hope, but we don't have security any longer. There's always a failure on the human side until you get to Jesus. And then when there's temptation in the wilderness, Israel falls and Jesus stands. Where Joseph's kingdom ends, Jesus' endures. Where David brings some peace, Christ brings an eternal peace. Where the nation of Israel becomes xenophobic and holds itself together and tries to be its own little nation in the midst of the world, there is Christ who invites the nations in and fulfills that by redeeming them and welcoming them to the throne of God. It's the better hope, and it's the accomplishment that Christ has brought. These are the pictures that your Bible is laying down, showing you the human failure, minus what? The success of God. So that when God succeeds, we rejoice, and we recognize that there's coming a final success. Now, Christian, what do you do with that? Well, you live in a world. I mean, I joke, like, what's going to happen when food prices are out of control and your garden fails? And you're like, stop talking to me about next summer because it looks like it. And we joke about that, but at the same time, are, are we promised security in this world? Are we promised that the grocery store should be fully stocked until the end of time? No. We live in a world that is uncertain. We live in a world that has darkness. We live in a world that has difficulties. Christian, you live in a world that's passing away. You live in a world that's preparing you for an eternal kingdom because that's where your home is. That's where God is, seated at the right hand of the Father, glorified on high, and he is calling you to himself that where he is, you may be too. Your salvation is not here. It is in eternity with Christ. And there is coming a day where Romans 8 will be fulfilled and this creation will be redeemed. But until that day is coming, or until that day comes, we wait and we hope but we can see the pictures that have been laid down in Scripture. We can see what God has been pointing to so that we know the message hasn't changed. We know the hope has not been lost so that as we see and as we live now, we know that a good end will come. Let's pray.